Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Yahweh is particularly sensitive about fidelity. He wants his people to be solely devoted to him. He's not content to share them with other gods. Century after century, when Israel strayed from him, Yahweh sent prophets to confront his people. Eventually, he could not abide their treachery and took drastic measures, removing them from the land. We'll cover this tragic history and how God cured his people from their idolatry addiction. Lastly, we'll cover Isaiah 7.14 as well as 9.6, two texts that some allege teach that a coming child would be God. Here now is episode 413, part three of our One God class called Yahweh versus the Idols. Number three, Yahweh versus the Idols. I want to begin with a disclaimer. The vocabulary the Bible uses to talk about the subject of idolatry is not appropriate for children. Those of you who are listening to this, if there are kids around, it's probably better to turn this off or pause it until later when you could be alone. I say that because God has so much pathos on this topic, so much emotion. God's very emotional about the topic of idolatry. And I don't really want to water it down. I want you to feel God's emotion for it. And some of the language he uses through the prophets is adult language. So, all right. Having said that, (laughs) let's talk about last time. Last time we saw God come down on Mount Sinai and he came down in this extravagant display of power with fire and thunder and an earthquake and his voice. And he introduced himself to his people, Israel. And that first generation who saw God come down in the fire on Mount Sinai built a golden calf a little while later, which is just like the biggest forehead slap, didn't turn out too well for generation one. Generation two, however, did pretty well. Did pretty well, and they were were faithful, and they entered into the land under Joshua. And they were the ones that were taught the Shema. That's the creed, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. But I didn't talk about the third generation, or the fourth, or the 13th, or the 113th generation of Israelites. So the question is, well, what happened to them? How did, how did Israel fare with respect to faithfulness to God? Those of you who read the Old Testament know, not well. <laughs> not well. But let's, uh, let's take it just to the next step here. Judges chapter 2, verse 11. This would be generation 3. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals. Baal is a Canaanite god. Uh, native to the land that they had just moved into, the promised land. And they abandoned Yahweh. Can you imagine that? They abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked Yahweh to anger. They abandoned Yahweh and served the Baals and the Asherot, So Baal and Asherah, these are other gods in competition with Yahweh. And uh, the people of of God, when they entered into the land, they were faithful so long as Joshua was alive. But then after that, we had the period of the judges when they fell into idolatry. 
worshiping these idols, these other gods. But then they would cry out to God because they would start to get oppressed by their foreign neighbors. And God would raise up a judge who would deliver them. And they would be somewhat faithful until the judge died and then back into the idolatry again. So we have this cycle of dysfunction throughout the period of the judges. And then we get a king. And the book of Judges, if you've read it, says over and over, there was no king in those days. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So you get this idea that like, all right, now that we have a king, it's going to be awesome. People are going to be faithful. And you know what? Saul wasn't bad. Saul wasn't too bad with idolatry. He was, he was pretty good. In fact, he had outlawed all the necromancers and the spiritists out of the land. Uh, of course, he did make an exception for himself towards the end of his life to go visit one of these people that called up the dead. But by and large, his policies were pretty pro-Yahweh, monotheistic. And same thing with David, the second king of Israel. David was, was fiercely loyal to Yahweh as the only true God. Um, not that he was without, was without flaw. I mean, he definitely messed up big time, but not in idolatry. He was pretty faithful there. And then we get to Solomon, the third king. Solomon was amazing. He was just like what we're, if everything is sort of like an uphill journey, Solomon is the, the peak of the mountain where you get to the mountaintop and everything is great. We call it the golden age. Solomon builds this temple to Yahweh worship. He's got the priests. He enacts all these great policies to help people, and he's, he's fabulously wealthy and wise, and everything's great until the end of his life. And then at the end of, the, of his life, we read in 1 Kings 11.5, for Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians. These are the names of other gods. And after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and did not wholly follow Yahweh as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives. Isn't that something? Who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. So Solomon is really, although he was so great for most of his life, towards the end of his life, he was just really... We crested and then we just started going down the other side of the mountain very fast with Solomon. And uh, he actually introduces the worship of these other gods in the, uh, the royal areas and with his foreign wives. And so the, the kingdom, after Solomon died, went to his son Rehoboam and it split. And so we have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. That's the period when we get the kings and the prophets, right? Where we have the prophet who speaks to the king whether we're talking about Saul or David or Solomon or the later kings, the prophet speaks God's truth to the king. That's the role of the prophet. We don't have prophets so much in the time of the judges because the judge was the one God was speaking to. But now that we have kings, it's passed from father to son, and so the son might not be spiritual. The son might not agree with this or that policy. And so the prophets confronted the kings on idolatry and injustice. Those are the two main things. You could probably add some other categories to it too, but my focus today is just idolatry. I want to give you a flavor for what God's message was through the prophets to the kings and to the people during this period. So first up, we have Isaiah. Isaiah 44, 13. This is a great description of how the prophet will confront idolatry. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. 
He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. It just shows you just how insane idolatry is. I mean, here you have this tree. And like you even know where the tree came from. Like you, you picked it. You, you made sure it was in a good climate or you, you watered it, whatever. And then you cut it down and you use some of it to do this and some of it to do that. And then you turn it into the shape of a, of a human and worship it. It's just when you say it that way, it's just like. I think of Isaiah here as describing how the sausage is made. (laughs) He's describing how the idol is made. Uh, Half of it, he goes on, he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god. (laughs) His idol, and falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me. For you are my God. Verse 19, no one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and I have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? I mean, he's laying it on thick here. He's he's making his point. Like, idols are stupid. Stop worshiping them, people. Isaiah also says in another place, there, there are quite a few statements like this in Isaiah but 45 is probably the strongest. This sounds just like the Shema to me. Isaiah 45, 5, I am Yahweh. This is God speaking through the prophet. And there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. Verse 18, For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. You getting the point? Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and what? There is no other. Over and over and over, the prophets are telling the people, Yahweh is the only God. Yahweh is the only God. Yahweh is the only one. These other gods can't save you. They are not going to deliver you. Jeremiah says something very similar. There is none like you, O Yahweh. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among the wise ones of the nations and in their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God, 
and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Just one more. Just one more. I'm trying to make my point. <laughs> the prophets are calling the people and the king to worship Yahweh alone. Hosea 13.4 says, But I am Yahweh your God. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me. And besides me, there is what? No Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed and become full, they were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they what? Forgot me. Isn't that incredible? People had a good life and they said, what do we need God for? They forgot him. He says in Hosea 4.12, My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. So this is where we get into our adult language here. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, terambeth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your bride commits adultery. Israel just could not kick its addiction to idolatry. It seems so puzzling to us today that this was such, a, such an issue, but it was such an issue. And uh, the prophets were sent over and over and they expressed what an idol really was and how it broke God's heart and that God is one and there's no other besides him. But probably no one more illustrated this than Hosea himself. It says in Hosea 1-2, When Yahweh first spoke through Hosea, Yahweh said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking Yahweh. That's very intentional. It's not like God's got a tick and he's like, or, you know, he's not trying to say the same word over. It's, it's to emphasize the fact that how upset he is that his people are cheating on him. And what he, what he calls Hosea to do is to find a woman who's a prostitute, somebody that is, is going to cheat on him, and marry her and be good to her. And this way, Hosea will be an illustration to the people of how God feels about their idolatry. You see how that works? And so Hosea goes and he finds a woman. Her name is Gomer. And they have three kids together. And God gives the kids their various names. And we come across chapter 2 where it says in verse 2, Plead with your mother. Hosea is speaking to the kids. Plead with your mother. Plead, she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Whew. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Look, I don't want to get into describing to you too deeply what's going on here because you have Hosea and Gomer and, and he's, he's talking about his wife. But the greater truth is that God's really talking about Israel and their idolatry at the same time. So it's a bit confusing to parse it all out. But my question to you is simply this. Do you feel the pain? Do you feel the pain of a Hosea who's married to Gomer and who, who's, whose wife has gone out to cheat? Do you feel the pain? Uh, she left, she went back into prostitution, just like God saved his people out of Egypt, out of a land full of idols, 
and brought them into the promised land and said, Be faithful to me, teach your children, I am Yahweh, there is no other. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. Teach them this. And then what do they do? They went right back into the idolatry, maybe different names of those gods than the Egyptian names, but they went right back into that idolatry. God feels like a, a husband who's been cheated on by his people. Still, no place better describes this than Ezekiel 16. It is the most incredible description that God gives to how he feels about his people. And here there's no Hosea, there's no Gomer, there's no one else standing in the way. It's just like God talking directly about how he feels. He says in Ezekiel 16, verse 1, Again, the word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. By the way, abomination is something that's despised or hated. And say, thus says the Lord Yahweh to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field. For you were abhorred on that day that you were born. And when I passed by you, saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness, and I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you. He's talking about marriage. God believes that he has married. He's entered into a covenant with his people, declares the Lord Yahweh, and you became mine. Isn't that incredible? God thinks of his people as his then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. Reminds me of Solomon's reign, where everything was, was gold and all this fancy stuff. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord Yahweh. Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown, and lavish your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took the embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them. Also, my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declares the Lord Yahweh. And then we get to verse 20. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, says God, 
and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. Do you feel God's pain? Do you sense how he feels? And this is not a 20-year relationship. This is over centuries. When he found them, and uh, you know, he first called Abraham, and then hundreds of years passed, and they went to Egypt, and they were there for hundreds of years, and they came out, and you know, he made his covenant with them at Sinai. That's his marriage covenant. And then he, he brought them into the, the land, and then there was his judges, and it was crazy, and then there were kings for all this time. And now there have been all these centuries of kings, and Ezekiel's at the end of the whole long line of the history And God speaks and says, this is how I feel. This is how I think about it. This is how I feel about it. He's brokenhearted. He's angry. He's outraged. And it talks about, some of the prophets talk about a cup of wrath. There's been a steady drip of idolatry filling up this cup of wrath for century after century. And now it's, in Ezekiel's time, it's not just full, it's overflowing. It's it's, it's just brimming with his wrath. And he's going to pour out his wrath on his own people. It says in Jeremiah 5, 7, How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the house of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares Yahweh? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? So God's asking Jeremiah, who's also there at that last generation of the kings, And he's saying to him, what else should I do, Jeremiah? Look at what they're doing. They don't feel sorry. They're not going to quit. I've waited seven centuries, Jeremiah. Do you know what that's like? (laughs) Of course, Jeremiah would have no idea, right? Seven centuries. I've been working with these people. And that's just from the time of Egypt. You know, if you want to go back to Abraham, tack on a couple more. What, nine centuries? God's working with these people. And they won't stay faithful. So he decides to bring the Babylonians. Second Chronicles 36.15 says, Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers. This is the prophets. Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his word and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of Yahweh rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of Yahweh and the treasures of the king and of his princes. And of all these he brought to Babylon and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kings of Persia. Now, this is the struggle with idolatry throughout the whole Old Testament. Okay, we just did the whole Old Testament in 23 minutes. Might have felt a little fast, but we're just focusing on one subject, idolatry. Okay, so we had the conquest. That's when Joshua brought that second generation into the land. That's the conquest. Things were good. 
Joshua was very good. The people were faithful. It says the people in, in the book of Joshua, in the book of Judges, it says the people died. They were faithful all the days of Joshua. And then you got the period of the Judges. And then during the period of the Judges, we have the cycle of dysfunction, lots of idolatry. And then we get to the kings. You have some good kings early on, and then increasingly more bad kings. I mean, Jeroboam, who's the first king of the north, his first act as king is to, even though it had been centuries since the golden calf incident, he brings back the golden calf. That's his first act as the king of the northern kingdom. He brings back the golden calf, and not just one, two. He brings up back two golden calves, puts one in the north, one in the south, specifically so that the people in northern Israel will no longer go to the temple to worship Yahweh. It's a bit on the nose. And so it was, there were some good kings in there too, a little bit like Hezekiah, Josiah, Asa wasn't bad. And then you had the exile and the return from exile. So this period from the judges to the kings, which I was saying, my guess is like seven-ish centuries, okay? Hard to say for sure. This is a period characterized by nearly consistent idolatry, where God's heart is just broken over and over and over again during this period. And then he brings those fierce, ungodly Babylonians against his own people. And he uses them like a scalpel to cut out the cancer of idolatry. It's absolutely incredible. You've, ne you've never heard of any other people group, any other nation doing this kind of thing. What God does is he takes his people, he brings those Babylonians in, and those Babylonians conquer his own people and then carry them away to a foreign land. For 70 years, that's called the exile. And in that period, that's like a treatment for cancer, if you can think of it like that. If, the, if idolatry is a cancer, the exile is a treatment. Because when they come back from the exile, they're no longer worshiping other gods. And God had all kinds of people in place to make sure this would happen. Ezekiel was already there in exile. Daniel was already there in exile. Jeremiah ended up getting taken down to Egypt. So he had prophets in each of these different areas telling the people, hey, the reason why the Babylonians are, are defeating you is because of idolatry, because of injustice, because of your behavior. This is God's punishment. Yahweh is so powerful that he can use Marduk's people, the God of the Babylonians. He can use, he can use another people to do his punishment. And the people got the point. They came back in in this post-exile period after that 70-year period, and they were monotheists. Monotheists is uh, somebody who believes in one God. They didn't any longer worship the other gods. I mean, this is, this, is a little hard, this is a little hard for me to say because there's so much time has passed, but it worked. It worked. 25 centuries from the time they came back from the exile to today. And they don't worship idols. Think about the time of Jesus. Do you, do you see them talking about Baal? Do you see them talking about Chemosh or Marduk? So do a search for Marduk in the New Testament. Zero results. That's just not their issue. They're, they'll fight about other stuff, but they're not in idolatry. Jesus, Jesus doesn't rebuke anyone for worshiping an idol. There are no idols. Why aren't there any idols? Because it worked! God brought them out, it cured them, they brought them back, and from century after century, maybe there are some exceptions in there I don't know about, but from century after century to this day, the Jewish people are a monument 
to monotheism. You ask a Jewish person, we're in New York State, right? Lots of Jewish people around. Ask them. They're a monument to monotheism in every generation, and they don't mess around with other gods. They're very strict about it. They're willing to die for this, many of them. So in light of this, I thought, just as we close out, I want to look at a couple of verses from the prophets, from Isaiah in particular, that sometimes get a little mixed around. And the first one is Isaiah 7.14, where we get this famous word, Emmanuel. And during the holiday season, we hear a lot of these, like, Emmanuel Christmas songs, right? Isaiah 7.14, Therefore Yahweh himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Nobody ever reads 15 and 16. <laughs> they just read 14 and like, oh, it's so nice. But like 15 and 16 give you a lot of clarity. This is a historical person, this Emmanuel. This is somebody that lived in the time of Isaiah. This is a sign child whose birth signified that God had not abandoned his people, but that he was with them. However, this gets picked up in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, where we read, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now this phrase, uh, Emmanuel, and this is part of uh, the Gospel of Matthew where it says God with us, is translated, God is with us, by hmm, the New American Bible and the New Jerusalem Bible. Those are two of the most famous Catholic Bibles. By the Christian Standard Bible and the New Living Translation, two of the most famous Baptist-slash-Evangelical Bibles. And the New Revised Standard Version, which is like the biggest mainliner Christian Bible. So like pretty much whatever branch of Christianity you look at, there's a, there's a main Bible that's translating this, not God with us, but God is with us. You see the difference uh, instead of God with us? Well, let, let me explain a little more. These are called theophoric names. Theophoric means bearing God. These are names that bear God in them. So, and there's a whole bunch of them. The Israelites loved naming their kids after God. <laughs> so you have Daniel. God, my judge. Gabriel, God, my strength. Uriel, God, my light. Elijah, Yah, my God. Hezekiah, Yah, my strength. Emmanuel, God, with us. But nobody translates these this way. Nobody. They all realize that in Hebrew, usually you don't have the verb to be there. So you just put it in in English when you bring it into English. So if you look at the translation, it's not going to say... Nobody thinks that, that every Daniel is actually a judge that's their God. They know that the kid, his name means God is my judge. You see the difference? God my judge, God is my judge, right? Same thing at the bottom there. Uh, Emmanuel, God is with us. But then if you even think about it deeper, right? What about a name like Eli or in Hebrew, Eli? It just means my God. This kid's name was legit my God. My God, it's time for dinner. My God, go clean your room. You know, like, this is what they called their, their kids. They called them after their God. And nobody got confused. Nobody thought, oh, well, this little Eli, he really must be God incarnate because, I mean, just look at his name. That's just not how names work. 
Names are signifying, first of all, something about their belief in God. What is it signifying in the case of Jesus when Jesus is born? I'll tell you what it's signifying. God had not performed many miracles and not spoken to many prophets and so on for several centuries. The people were asking, are we abandoned? Is this it? We're done. This child who is born means God is with us. God has not been, that's what Emmanuel means. It means God is with us. It doesn't mean this child is God in the flesh. It just means that God is with us and that the child is a sign of that. One more quick remark on Isaiah 9.6. We'll, we'll probably come back to this later. But Isaiah 9.6 is another one of these names in the same section of the Bible. There's actually three. Isaiah 7 has Emmanuel. Isaiah 8 has Meher Shallow Hashbaz. And then Isaiah 9 has this other child, which in the ESV we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now what I find so interesting about this is that the Jewish Publication Society, the the original JPS Bible, translated this instead of Wonderful Counselor. They just left it Hebrew. They transliterated the Hebrew into English letters. So so instead of saying the name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, they say his name is called Pele Joez El Gibor Abi Adsar Shalom. That's a long name. (laughs) But it, it, it gives you the sense of this is a name. This is not necessarily theological content about this person. It's a name. And same thing for the Koren Jerusalem Bible, which is a standard Bible used in Israel today, Koren Jerusalem Bible. For to us a child is born, and then they say his name is called, once again, Pele Yoez El Gibor Aviad Sar Shalom. So what am I saying? I'm saying that it could be that this prophecy in Isaiah 9-6 is a sentence name, that it is in line with Isaiah 7, Emmanuel, Isaiah 8, Meher Shal Hashbaz, which is a pretty long name, that this other one, Pele Yoez El Gabor Aviad Sar Shalom, is another one of these Hebrew, you know, long names, sign child, prophecy kind of things. I don't think that fully explains it, but I think it does help give us a little context for Isaiah 9-6. Like I said, we'll come back to this later. So let's, let's review. Number one, Israel could not shake her addiction to idolatry during the period of the judges and the kings. Roughly seven centuries. All right. It could not shake their addiction. Number two, God repeatedly sent prophets to call Israel to forsake idolatry and worship Yahweh alone. That's what the prophets were for. Eventually, number three, God decided to use the Babylonian Empire to punish his people for their infidelity carrying them away into exile. Number four, since they returned from exile, God's people have taken a strong stand against idolatry for roughly 25 centuries. An impressive record, I'd say. To this day, number five, most Jewish people would rather die than worship anyone other than Yahweh, the one God overall. I had to say that, one God overall. Emmanuel means, number six, God is with us and signals God had not abandoned his people in Isaiah's time or Jesus' time. And number seven, Isaiah 9-6 may also be a theophoric name. We will return to this later. All right, so next time we're going to delve into the New Testament and ask the question, what did Jesus teach? What did Jesus believe about God? As we continue through to understand our one God, 
overall. That brings this episode to a conclusion. If you'd like to make any comments or ask any questions, come on over to restitudio.org. Find episode 413, Yahweh versus the Idols, and leave your comments there. We have gotten a couple of comments in on the last episode, both on restitudio.org and on YouTube. Uh, One of them comes from Jaron Chanson, who wrote, We have an assurance that our pledge is to honor our God Yahweh as one alone. There is none like him. As well, we believe the only way is through the human son, Jesus the Messiah. Blessings from India. Well, thanks for writing in, Jaron. It's encouraging, as always, to hear good news from a far country. Uh, God bless you in India and the work you do there. Today's episode, I think, would be particularly relevant in a context like India, where there are so many different gods actively worshipped by so many people. So uh, that'll be... So even if for Israel, idolatry is a dead issue, uh, for Hindus, it is not a dead issue. It's very much a live issue in our world today. Also, Mark wrote in on our last episode, very happy with the new series. I have a question for you, though. In the episode, you mentioned Jews not pronouncing God's name out of respect. Indeed, when reading scripture praising God or when praying, his name is substituted with Adonai or Elohim. And outside of these, Hashem. With this practical solution, one can be assured he's not using God's name in vain, thus not breaking this commandment. Then he goes on to talk about how nobody's really sure about how exactly to pronounce God's name and then says, Personally, I avoid pronouncing God's name for this reason, just to err on the side of caution. I might be wrong, but in that case, I've just called God by one of his many titles. Lord, not an issue, I would say. However, if I were right, then possibly I have been calling God by a false name all this time. Clearly, you and most other Christians view this differently, so can you elaborate on your reasoning regarding whether to pronounce God's name or substitute it? Maybe I'm just a weirdo. I really appreciate all the effort you put into your podcast, and I pray that God may bless you abundantly for it. Well, Mark, thanks for writing in. I, too, have gone back and forth on this very issue, and you know, I totally understand your line of reasoning, and look, whatever you want to do is your business. My reason for pronouncing God's name, even though I'm not entirely sure, whether it's Yahweh, Yehovah, or some other pronunciation, is because the ambiguity that results within Christianity is where confusion has been able to get a foothold. The confusion of Lord Adonai or Lord Yahweh getting confused with Lord Adon or Adoni and Kyrios. And since most people that I interact with do not have a very good grasp of the biblical languages, the easiest way to deal with the confusion is just to use God's name all the time. And, uh, and so that's kind of that, so that's where I've landed with it. If I was talking to a Jewish person, I would never say the name of God. Many of them would just be so upset and feel that I had violated the sacredness of the name. But with respect to that tradition, I don't see the scripture as saying that when it says don't use his name in vain, I don't think it's saying don't mispronounce his name or don't pronounce it in a way that is is uncertain. What it's saying is don't carry his name in vain. Don't go around doing your activities, especially sin, and saying you're one of Yahweh's people because the idea of representation, you 
as one of God's people, represent God. And so if you are carrying the name of God on your life, and then you go and rob a bank, that is carrying his name in vain. I don't think it has anything to do with pronouncing it. I think that is a later tradition. So I I get it. I'm not going to condemn anybody that wants to substitute. But for me, who is very concerned to help people see the difference between Yahweh and Jesus, for me, uh, the the easiest and most effective way to do that is to sensitize them to capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament and, and, and using the name as much as possible. Another solution for this would be uh, to use the, the term Hashem, right? Hashem is just Hebrew for Ha is the and Shem is name. And that is what uh, a lot of Jewish people do. Um, and But no, no translations or, or very, very few translations. You know, the simple fact is that our translations are by and large in the, in the custom of hiding God's name and doing it, and, and they're very happy to do it in such a way that leads to confusion. And I think so much clarity comes by distinguishing. So, I mean, I guess there could be other solutions. If you put Hashem instead of Yahweh, people were educated to know what Hashem meant. So that would be another possibility. Thanks for everyone for listening. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitudio.org. Thanks to those of you who are supporting us. It really means a lot. It helps out with costs to get this podcast done. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.